Welcome to New Life, everyone. Welcome to New Life. Glad to have you guys here. Hey, if you guys would go ahead and find a seat. I want to say hello to everyone worshiping with us in North Platte, as well as down in the venue, and you that are here in our main auditorium. How many people are excited to be in God's house worshiping God today? Come on. Yeah. If uh, you are new with us, um, my prayer for you is that someday in the future, you might also go, I'm excited to be here as well. But I know that New Life is a place where a lot of people come to explore Christianity. They come to find out, is Jesus really God? Who is this guy? What's he all about? Should I be surrendering my life to him? Should I be following him? Um, If you're exploring Christ today, you're in a great place. You're in a safe place. But you're in a place that we're going to love you right where you're at. And we're just going to keep helping all of us keep taking steps to become all that God wants for our life. Hey, I just got to say this, all right, to our church. You guys are more incredible than what you might think. Yeah. You guys are more amazing than what you may have even hoped for or even known about. So last week we had this ice storm thing that came in, right? And a lot of people missed church. But how many people were here last week? If you were here, just put your hand up. Okay, man, a lot of you. Wow. Wow, you guys, that's awesome. Um, but here's, here's what happened. On our online campus, we had 150 plus, actually, 150 plus logins onto our on. Um, on our online campus, people worshiping with us uh, last Sunday. I think that's pretty exciting. When you've got weather like that, you have 150 plus logins. Now, how, how many people are behind every login, right? So that's like, the mis- that's like the mysterious question. Is it one person? Is it two people, three people, four people? How many people are behind each of those logins? You pick a number, right? We choose to pick a number that's pretty low when we're calculating it. We do, we do what the government would do. 1.5 people for every login. Because it just sounds more official, right? 1.5 people for every login. So that means that roughly about 225 of you minimum, maybe probably more like 300 to 450 of you, worship with us online. This is what I'm trying to drive home. We have such an incredible congregation of people so passionate and love with Jesus and love their church that even when a snowstorm or an ice storm comes, you still put a priority of worshiping together with us. And that makes for an incredible congregation. I think you guys are awesome. High five the person next to you and just tell them how awesome they are. Okay, come on. Come on. You guys are. You are. You make, you make ministry so much fun. You do. Well, hey, we're in this teaching series called Apostles' Creed. I hope you guys have been enjoying it. Okay? Um, just rate it. Just rate it right now. Just stick your hand out like this. Okay? Just right now. Come on. This is it. This is a rating moment. Stick your hand out like this. If it's like not meeting your expectations, you're going to want to go like that. All right? If it's meeting your expectations, go like that. But just put it someplace where you think it needs to be. On three. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, all right, good, all right, okay, for the most part, I saw that, right. I saw some people, they were like, put it up there. Um, yeah, it's been fun. It's been, a, it's been a joy to be, you know, journeying through this Apostles' Creed and letting it kind of act like a matrix for God's Word, pointing us back to what God's Word has to say. Some of you grew up in churches where you quoted this all the time. Others of you grew up in churches where, you know, it was almost taboo. And so we're conquering this thing. And there's a few things that I really wanted to see us win in. 
in, in this teaching series. So maybe go through this checklist and see if this is happening in your heart, okay? First thing I wanted to do um, with this teaching series was, was I wanted to strengthen your theology of God. So I hope that that's happening. I hope your theology of God is being strengthened. The second thing I wanted to do is I wanted to stir a greater heart of unity within our church. Knowing that we are a church of people that come from all different types of you know, religious backgrounds um, when it comes to worshiping Jesus, that is, that we come from these different experiences of worship, that when we come together, there needs to be a unity. And so I hope that that's happening, where we're valuing one another more than we ever have before. Um, I also wanted to bring clear understanding of biblical doctrine. I wanted you to be able to walk away going, man, God's word is meaningful, and there's things in God's word that I really need to have in my heart. And then lastly, I wanted you to take this creed, and I want, I wanted it to become life-giving and a practical tool for your spiritual journey. I wanted it to become something that you could actually, you know, commit to your heart. So how many of you guys have memorized the creed now? How many of you guys have memorized it? Okay, there's a lot of interaction going on at the beginning of this sermon, isn't there? I apologize. Some people are awkward with that. But all right, just one more time. You've memorized the creed. Put your hand up. Okay, how many of you guys would be willing to be called out then if you had your hand up and come up here and quote it for us? It's amazing. There's no hands in the main auditorium. All the hands are up in the venue. They're like, pick me, pick me. I pick you, sir, in the third row back on the right-hand side. Um, I have no idea who that is. So so what we did for you is we created this uh, Apostles' Creed. We put it into like a bookmark form. It's been in a postcard form. Um, I want you to put this in the book that you're reading the most, okay, the Bible. Put this in your Bible and um, use it. And let the, let the creed be something that drives drives your prayer. How could it do that? Well, you could take statement by statement in the creed and give God thanks for every one of those statements because they're biblical and they're true. All right? I want you to commit this to memory um, because it's the kind of thing the Holy Spirit can use in your life. As you're reading through the scriptures, um, you, can, you can just kind of tag some things and you can tie some scripture together because this statement is a statement of doctrine and it will hold us, it will hold your faith together. So today we're going to jump into the creed and we're going to read a portion of it and then we're going to get to the part that we're going to go and uh, use it to help us focus in on God's word and what God has to say. So here's the beginning of it that uh, we've already gone through. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he arose again from the dead. Now we're getting to the part that we're going to focus in today. So would you please... Read this part with me, right? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So today, that's our focus. It's right there. Let's just jump in and start tackling this thing just right away. First off, we believe that Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, when When people die here on earth now, in our day and age, we do one of two things. We either, there's either cremation or there is a, there's a funeral that takes us to a graveyard and then the, and then we bury people and we have a tombstone of remembrance. And so for, for us, when people die, for the most part, pretty classic, although there's, 
There's, you know, a couple of different ways to express that, like we've talked about. You go to a grave and you bury them and there's a tombstone. Well, the tombstone now becomes the moment where you can go back and you can reminisce about the person, right? You can reminisce about their life. You can reminisce about the stories that have happened, you know, and you can just have great moments of incredible memory. Well, here's the thing. Jesus, he rose again, like the creed says, um, on the third day. There isn't a tombstone for Jesus, Okay, now here's, here's the interesting point. In the Bible, there are 10 different instances where people were dead and they rose again from the grave. Nine of those 10 have tombstones. One of them doesn't. So when we read in the Bible of these other individuals who were dead and they rose again, guess what? They died again. Jesus is the only one who was ever crucified or died, rose again from the grave, and there is no tombstone. There's no place where there's bones that are buried because Jesus ascended into heaven and he, he, had, he went back and he took his rightful place as King of kings and as Lord of lords. So the ascension of Jesus into heaven is a powerful statement. The ascension of Jesus reminds us that Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't on this earth Jesus isn't under this earth, that Jesus is above this earth, and he is beyond this earth. The ascension of Jesus gives us great hope for eternal life. See, when Jesus rose again from the grave, he secured eternal life for himself. But what about for us? When Jesus ascended to heaven and he took his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords, he secured eternal life for us. That's powerful, guys. That's why it's so important to hang on to that. So important to remember it. So important to give thanks to God for that. Our, our, maybe a last comment, that one last comment that I want to focus in on, on the ascension would be this, that the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, living in, in the body of man, God in that form, he stood beside the disciples when they did ministry. But because of the ascension of Jesus, The Holy Spirit, God, now lived in the disciples to accomplish incredible ministry. And by the way, because of the ascension of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit can live in you and live in me. That's what Jesus had to say. Take a look at what he said in John chapter 16. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your, what's the word? It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. The helper, in this, in this uh, you know, uh, version of the Bible, the helper is the Holy Spirit. That's the helper. And Jesus could only be in one place at one time because of the limitations of the physical body that you and me have. Right? But the Holy Spirit, he can live within everyone who surrenders themselves to Christ, who gives themselves to Jesus, and who lives a life of repentance. The Holy Spirit can live in you. That means the Holy Spirit is living in you know, millions of believers around the world, but the Holy Spirit of God is everywhere at all time. I would say to you that the word advantage needs to have some additional oomph to it. That's a massive advantage, a massive advantage that the Holy Spirit lives in us than this Jesus standing beside us doing ministry. So that's, that's the power of believing and knowing that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's not just this little statement. It is a powerful statement that brings life to you and to me, and we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit next week. But here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to write this down. 
I'd like, I'd like for you to give yourself an assignment this afternoon. To go home, open up the Bible, and read Acts chapter 1. Okay? I want you to go home and read Acts chapter 1. Because in Acts chapter 1 is where the, the encounter of the ascension takes place. And I want, I want you to read it, and I want you to look for a few things. First, I want you to read, listen, and look for the last words of Jesus before he ascends. I mean, how many people know that the last words of a, of a dying person that you honor and that you respect, those words are going to be powerful? I need you to read Acts chapter 1 to look for the very last words that Jesus spoke. The other thing I want you to look for and reflect on are the words that the angel speaks after Jesus ascends. Here's what I want you to do with those two things. First, I want you to take the last words of Jesus and I want you to contemplate how you can take action on those words. How you can take those last words of Jesus and start living them in your personal life. What is it going to take for you to start accomplishing those last words? Secondly, I want you to thank God for the words that the angel spoke. So now you're going, well, what did, what did the angel say? What were the last words of Jesus? Well, that's why it's called an assignment, all right? So go home, read that, look for those last words, apply the last words of Jesus to your life, and thank God for those words that the angel spoke to those who got to see him ascend into heaven. Well, the creed goes on and it says that, you know, we believe that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. People have asked me before, what is Jesus doing in heaven anyways? Is it just like one big party that's going on up there? Uh, what is going on? What's Jesus doing in heaven right now? And I, if I could just simply sum it up with two things, I would tell you this. First off, he's waiting for God to give him the command, go get your church. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, a place of honor. And with great anticipation, Jesus is going, is today the day? Is this the moment? Is this the hour? You can almost imagine the anticipation in Jesus as God the Father goes to say something and Jesus is like, is this it? Oh, it's not it. Okay, all right, we'll keep waiting. We'll keep waiting. That's one thing. He's waiting with great anticipation for God the Father to say, go get your church. Right? Go get those who have committed themselves and are following you with all their heart. But secondly, the Bible tells us that Jesus is pleading for us. He's pleading for us. Here's what uh, Romans 8 has to say about this issue. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus, he died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand doing what? pleading for us other versions of the bible might use the word he's interceding for us but either way it's proclaiming the same basic truth jesus is acting as an advocate pleading our case think of it from the perspective of like a courtroom jesus is our advocate he is our lawyer if you will he is pleading our case what type of case is our advocate jesus pleading for us what's the case look like well, the Bible tells us exactly what the case looks like in 1 John. It says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, what? We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Our sin, your sin and my sin, is on trial before the very throne of God. Our sin is being put on trial by our accuser. The Bible refers to him as Satan. 
He is our accuser, and he's bringing your sin and my sin before the very throne of God to try to disqualify us from being in relationship and in communion with God and to spend eternity with God. And what is Jesus doing, our advocate? He's pleading for us. He steps up and he goes, hey, time out. Hold on a moment. I know that person. That's a person who's committed their life to me. That's a person who's living with an attitude of repentance to me. I know them by name. I I will cover their sin. Because I'm just going to tell you, we're guilty of our sin. But if it wasn't for Jesus, our advocate, who's pleading our case, then our sin, it will take us down. In fact, our sin will separate us completely from God. So why is it so important that you surrender your life to Jesus and then you maintain an attitude of repentance before God? Because you have one who's pleading your case. He knows you. He knows you by name. Now, some people, they struggle to believe that Jesus, he could ever love them, you know, despite uh, all of the the things that they've done. They look at their life and they're like, I've done so many things that are against God's word. How could Jesus really ever love me? How could he ever? I mean, I think about myself and all I think of is guilt and shame for the actions that I've done. I want you to know something. What you feel is a word called condemnation. Condemnation is spoken by one person, and its purpose is to push you away from Jesus. The one person speaking words of condemnation is your accuser. I'm just going to give you some advice today. If you've got two voices to listen to, the accuser, who's trying to condemn you and push you away from Christ, or your advocate, Christ, who is pleading for you and is trying to pull you to him, which voice do you want to listen to? We obviously want to listen to his voice. His voice is called conviction. Conviction many times gets misconstrued with condemnation. Because we think that conviction is somehow telling me how wrong I am and how bad I am, where conviction is the Holy Spirit pointing out where we're violating God's word and simply saying to us, would you, would you like to move close to God? And would you like to surrender that sin? And would you like to have that sin forgiven? Well, it's out of obedience and an attitude of humbleness that we come before God and we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Church, this is an attitude that we need to have daily. This is an attitude we need to have probably multiple times throughout the day. An attitude of repentance is not an attitude of weakness, but it's an attitude of knowing who is the strongest. And that is Jesus. So Jesus is doing this work, but there's another thing that Jesus is pleading as he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that is he's pleading for all of the lost to follow him. We know one thing about God, and that is God doesn't want any to perish, but he wants everybody to have eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. That today, right now, if you're outside of a relationship with God, Jesus is pleading through the Holy Spirit, drawing you to himself. It is the act of the Holy Spirit that's at work grabbing the hearts of people, opening up their eyes and helping them to see that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And that's happening because Jesus is pleading for all that are lost that they would come to eternal life and they would follow him. That's the heart of our Savior. That's the heart of Jesus himself. But some people think that Jesus, he just went to heaven, that he left us and that we're here to face this harsh world all on our own. And that Jesus somehow has forgotten about us and he doesn't care about what's going on. 
I'm just going to tell you right now, that is 100% absolutely not the truth. Jesus is not disconnected, but yet he has gone to do an incredible work to break down the disconnect between us and God and to draw us closer to him. Paul talks about this as he goes on in Romans chapter 8. Let's take it up in the next verse. We, we read verse 34 a minute ago, but here's what he says then. He goes, so in light of verse 34, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ, who loved us, loved us. <laughs> and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing. That's because of what Jesus did. That's because he sits at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is sitting in heaven right now. And he's broken the divide between us and God. But never mistake the fact that Jesus might be sitting in heaven right now, which is not on earth. Right? There's nothing about earth that looks anything like heaven. Jesus might be in heaven right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, but never equate out of sight with out of mind. Jesus. Jesus, he sees you right where you're at right now. Jesus, he always has you on his mind. How in the world does he plead your case if he doesn't have you on his mind? He knows you. He knows you in an intimate way. He knows you in a fashion that no one else on this planet will ever know you, not even your spouse. He knows the secrets of your life, but he chooses to stand up in the throne room of God and say, I know them and I love them for those who surrender to him and are walking in an attitude of repentance before him. You're never out of sight and out of mind with Jesus. The incredible love of Jesus, it destroyed actually the walls that separated us from God. And if the love of Jesus is received in your heart through surrender and continued acts of obedience, then you just need to know that what you received, it's guaranteed. It's a guarantee that you will have relationship with God through Christ. And then no one and nothing can steal that away from you. So, since Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, what should our response be? Walk in a life of repentance before God. You have one that's fighting for you. As we move in a few minutes into an attitude of worship, I would encourage you to do something that I do often. I often will close my eyes and picture Jesus in heaven on the throne. And that he is the one I'm worshiping. I'll just draw a vivid image of the best that I can do of what that looks like and I'll see, I'll just watch myself lift my hands to him and worship him. There's something about picturing Jesus on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords right now, today, as I stand here in new life on January 22nd, 2017 and I can see him and I can raise my hands and I worship him. Or I kneel down before him and I give him praise. Just because Jesus is in heaven doesn't mean that you should put him out of sight and out of mind either. We should worship him. He's our savior. Last thing we're gonna to tackle today though is that the creed helps us to remind us that we believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. <laughs> Jesus 
He didn't do his time and then return to a cozy heaven, you know, for some season of retirement and forget all about us. We just talked about that. When I was in the military, we talked about did we do our time, right? Um, I remember when I went off to war and I was in um, the, the, the desert of Saudi Arabia and a number of other countries, um, you know, I went over and I did my time in the sandbox called the, de- called the desert. I remember talking with other soldiers who served, you know, all the way up until retirement. And we would often say to one another, um, so how much time did you serve? And they would go, well, I served 20 years. And you'd be like, wow, that's awesome. That's incredible. Congratulations. I love you. You know, the great patriots that have served, you know, that are now at an age where they can't serve anymore. Uh, I've heard them actually say, I did my time. Now it's someone else's turn. Oh, but they wish they could go back and they could do more time. That's what great patriots do. But what you need to know is this. Jesus didn't serve his term. He didn't serve his time and then walk away into retirement. Jesus is actively awaiting to be called upon again. He's ready for and eager to return. But here's the thing. We talked about he's going to return. Some people are excited about returning, the returning of Jesus, and other people are just flat terrified at the returning of Jesus. There's this thing that happens on the inside of us like i'm i just don't i don't know what it's going to be like to be judged by god i'm not sure what's going to go down with that right i know that one thing is true about everybody that's here today everybody wants to spend eternity with jesus in heaven nobody wants to spend eternity away from god in hell right but few of us are eagerly and excited and with joy in our heart looking forward to the judgment of god right well, at least that's, that's what the Barna report a couple of years ago helped us understand. It said that 71% of Americans believe that people will go to hell. I thought that was quite high. But then when asked about themselves, only 0.005, five-tenths of a percent, believe that they are going to go to hell. So I extrapolated that out for a town of like 30,000. If people are right... Then in a town of 30,000, that only means one and a half people are going to go to hell. That's one login for our online viewership. (laughs) Are people right? This is what Jesus has to say about the issue in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the what gate? The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many, for the many who choose that way. I can tell you with confidence one thing about God's heart, and that's this. He doesn't want many to choose that highway. That's not his heart. But he gave us free will to decide which road are we going to take, which gate are we going to walk through. Today, it's a choice that even you have to make. And in the end, it will be our actions, it will be our decision on this earth that will cause eternity with God or eternity away from God. God has already done his part. And he's continuing to do his part through the work of the Holy Spirit. He's asking us to surrender to him. So yes, there is going to be a day of judgment, but you can know this about the day of judgment is that when Jesus judges us, he's going to judge judge us justly, and he's going to judge us out of an incredible, massive amount of love for us. 
Remember, he's the one who's been pleading your case. Jesus is going to judge us. there's There's going to be moments of discipline that are going to happen. You seem to know that, but discipline is love. A parent who disciplines their child is showing love. A parent who doesn't discipline their child and just wants to be their friend is a parent that doesn't have love for their child. God, we know this about God. He has an incredible amount of love for us. And the day of judgment, I would say to you, is not a day that Christians that are Christ-centered, that have surrendered their life to Jesus and are living a life of repentance should fear. The day of judgment should not be something that you fear. It should be something you look forward to. Something you look forward to. Like Paul, he said this. He goes, I look forward to this day coming when he was writing to Timothy. Listen to what he said. He says, I've found, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race and I have what? Remained faithful. So here's what he says. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous who? The righteous judge will give me on the day of his return. But look at this promise. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who will eagerly, eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul is like, bring on the judgment. Not because he looks at himself as self-righteous, but he knows where he stands through Christ. He's not looking for, he's not looking for the discipline. He's awaiting the reward. Because look, if God is a God who is just and righteous and holy and he knows how to give discipline that is perfect, then flip the coin over. He also knows how to give reward that's perfect. Paul says, I am eagerly waiting for this day for a crown of righteousness. Not because of what he has done, but because of what Jesus had done and him living in obedience before him. And then he says to you and to me, all the way to this day in 2017, if Paul could say one thing, he would step up here and he would say, guys, eagerly look forward to this day. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. So I got some advice for you. I got some advice. If you want to be ready and you want to be prepared for a day of judgment, are you ready for this? It's going to blow you away. Okay, this is going to be off the charts on the deep end. You ready? If you really want to be ready for the day of judgment, right? If you're always ready, then you don't need to get ready. I know, I told you it was going to be deep. Some people have this mentality that, well, I'll get my life together at some point. And then they live with this tumultuous like agony of what my life is being lived like versus what God wants it to live like. My suggestion to you is that if you're always ready, then you don't need to get ready. You'll just be ready. It's kind of like, if you ever had one of those moments when someone surprised you and they knocked on your door and you weren't expecting anybody to come over, right? They knock on your door and you're like, wonder who that is. And then you open up the door and it's, it's like an acquaintance of yours, but you know what your house looks like. And so have you ever done this before where you step out onto the porch and you close the front door behind you so you can talk to them right there? No, you've never done that. Okay. It just happened in my house when we were raising four kids. 
Yes, of course, I've stepped out and I've closed the door and I'm like, let's talk here. And uh, you get done and they leave and you're kind of like, whoo, okay, man, we avoided that one. Or have you ever had one of those moments when, you know, someone called and they said, hey, are you home? And you're like, yeah. They're like, perfect. I'm right around the block. I'm popping over for, for a couple minutes. And you're like, you look around the house and you, you're like, kids, quick, pick up the cat, pick up, the, pick up your socks, your shoes. You lift up the couch, you kick one of the kids underneath it and you close it back down. I mean, it's like you scramble to get the house clean, but you just do the room that you can see from the door. So when they come in, you greet them at the door, you let them in because you're, you want to be a person of hospitality, but you stand at the door blocking the rest of your house. If you're really sneaky, then you, you greet them at the door, and when they come in, you turn around and you put your back to the front door so that they can only look at the front door. But that's just a trick that I've learned, and I pass it on to you. <laughs> right? And so there you are again in this awkward moment. But have you ever had that moment where someone knocked on your door, or they called you and they said they're going to be right around the corner, they're going to be right there, and with great joy they showed up, and you opened up the door, and you let them come in because... You had nothing to hide because here, here's the way you had your house. You had your, your house in a constant state of order. Please notice that I didn't say in a constant state of cleanliness because I raised four kids and I know that you basically have to have like a vacuum cleaner, like three of them following four kids around the house. As soon as you get one part clean, it gets dirty and you just keep following the cycle. I didn't say clean for a reason. I said a constant state of order. Your life and my life is filthy because of sin. And from day to day, our lives are lived and things happen from moment to moment. And sometimes we stumble and we fall and we're in sin. And our house is unclean. But we can keep our lives in a constant state of order. By surrendering our life to Christ, humbling our life to him, and living a life of repentance. And with a house in a constant state of order, you never have to worry about the day that Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Never have to. And one of the great reasons for that is because of what Jude only has one chapter, verse 24 has to say about that day says that now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away. Who is it that's able to keep you from falling away? Jesus. And what will Jesus do? He will bring you with what kind of joy? Man, it's great joy into his glorious presence without a what? Oh, my word. How freeing is that? I know some of you are sitting out there right now and you're going, it's not possible. How can that even be possible? Look at my life. Don't let condemnation keep you from enjoying the freedom that Paul talked about when he said, I'm looking forward to the day of judgment. How can I wear a crown of righteousness? Because Jesus is going to present me in his presence before the Father without a single fault. That should cause us to want in worship to draw into Christ, not draw away from him. That's the kind of relationship that you can have with God if fully surrendered and continuing with a life of repentance. That's 
what something as classic as the Apostles' Creed reminds us of. When we say these words in just a moment, be reminded of a powerful, gracious God who pleads your case, who pleads your case and is able to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Why don't you stand with me and let's prepare our hearts for worship as we do proclaim this creed that we've been looking at as a matrix, helping us to see who God really is. Join me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we come before you with incredible gratitude, but amazing security, knowing that you ascended and you sit at the right hand of the Father and you plead our very case the case that should make us guilty and should separate us for eternity from God, our sin, but yet you plead it and you claim us by name as your own. And you say, I will take that sin upon myself. Lord, it's powerful what you have done for us. That positions you to be a righteous judge. That positions you to dish out discipline where it's needed justly, but yet to dish out reward where it's rewarded righteously. Lord, you are the perfect judge, and we look forward to your returning. Today, we picture you on the throne in all of your majesty, worthy of our worship. We come before you with boldness, with hands raised, with hearts abandoned to you, at times kneeling before you, proclaiming you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we choose to use the altars in all of our auditoriums as places for the hungry to come to come into your throne room and to kneel down and to worship you with an abandonment. Meet us here in this place today. Meet us. Show us your glory in this place as we choose to worship you, King of kings, Lord of lords, and righteous judge. You, Lord, deserve all of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.